retired teacher and once a student of Detroit Public School System, I realized the importance of changing the narrative of our school system. It upsets me to hear poor comments that are not even true. There was a time when our money was low, so low that the teachers took several pay cuts, but at no time did we shortchange our students. Yes, we used our own money for our supplies and clothes for our students, but that's all part of the job. Books were not a problem, for we copied what was important, even though the shortage was often due to students mistreating books and not bringing them back to school. Safety was a problem for some who found a need to bring problems into the school from outside, and even worse, problems from their homes. If you look at the news and compare us to many cities, our schools are safe. So what is the real problem with Detroit public schools that can't be changed with the help of parents taking an active role in their children's lives? Our students do go to the best colleges and universities in this country. During COVID, I prayed for us all and more for our students and teachers who are taking the risks to go back to school. Our children and staff, for the most part, stayed safe. So I ask again, what is your problem with our schools that you as parents can't handle or fix? Yes. There is a shortage of trained, licensed teachers in our schools, state, nation, and many parts of the world. This is a problem that the world must deal with. A smart world is better off than a not-so-smart world. So let's change the narrative in our city. What can you do today? to help improve our schools. There is no running away from this problem. Today, we have a guest who will give you true insight into the Detroit public schools. Even though she is the assistant superintendent of family and community engagement, today she is speaking as a person who loves this city and its people and not for the Detroit Public School Community District. See us as two sisters talking about what we think needs to be changed or not changed in a system we love. Detroit Joe welcomes Shalanda Buckman. Oh, thank you so much, Joe. You know, I love you. And I love the fact that um, over the years you have been truly an advocate and um, someone who has been able to speak uh, knowledge and truth into me uh, about education just as you were ending your uh, career in the Detroit Public Schools, now the Detroit Public Schools Community District. 
<laughs> so thank you so much for doing this and, and for what you've done and um, just the contributions that you've made to young people and even now still continuing to make contributions through um, this platform and others. So and thank you for having me today. Thank you. Would you tell us all a little bit something about you? A little about myself. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm excited to do that, Joanne, because I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that it really is about continuing to lift us up as a people and our children. And, you know, Detroit has always been sort of like this renaissance city. It was a place that people came from all over the world at some point, right on the promise of a job and $5 a day. I think there are great things about our city, including its education system. So for me, I actually was a student in the system some years ago. Um, we won't say how many. Joanne's like, I can't relate. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, let's say 35 years ago, I was 14 year old. Uh, I was a high school student. I had been an honor student, Joe, all through elementary, middle school, didn't miss school. My parents did not play that. Um, got all S's and O's. Remember when there were S's and O's? I should have led with the O's. I had more O's and S's. But, you know, attendance wasn't an issue then. And you remember that was the day when people would stand on their porches waiting on the kids to come home. And so there were high expectations of us as young people. And so I was always afraid to go to um, high school because I was a little thing, you know, I was skinny and um, it, high school just scared me. It was in the mid eighties when violence was, you know, erupting and throughout our schools. And so it became a huge policy issue. And so for me, when I got to high school, I went from being this all AB student, great attendance, never had any problems, never got in trouble and found myself in trouble and put out of all the Detroit public schools. OK. <laughs> and so at that time, there wasn't this conversation around charter schools and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was really if you didn't have the money, you just weren't in school. And that was my narrative. And so fast forward 35 years, I always say you don't get to decide who our kids are called to be, because I went from that 14 year old discarded from the system to now one of the people leading in the system. Uh, but not only that, um, that challenge became um, a platform for my life. I've spent the last 30 years, three decades investing in paying it for. It was a community that came together that made sure that I got an education and I went to college, et cetera. And so I carry that on my back for the thousands of kids that did not make it. And so for me, it's been about investing in our young people because I started my career in youth development. And at some point after several years, realized that I was um, supporting and positioning young people to be leaders, but they were operating in a space where they had no control. And so then I flipped the script and went over to work on the parent and family engagement and understanding that parents had the power to change things today. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I evolved from that to eventually going from agitating the system to working to reform the system, working with the schools to now leading in the system. So that has been very intentional on my part, always with a couple things in mind. This is all about kids. I've always been a champion for kids because I was that kid. And I know that one of the best ways that we can position our children to win is to make sure we invest in their parents and that we litter a path with love and opportunities through our education system and through our community um, to make the difference for our kids because it made the difference for me. You know, some of those things I didn't know about you. <laughs> Surprise! But, <laughs> but after um, this past Saturday, having my 50th reunion from Mumford High School, 
it was very emotional. Because once you get home, you realize those are the only people that truly know you, they love you, right or wrong, and they've got your back. And we say Mumford forever, and we mean it. And there's, there's something special about that neighborhood school. That's right. And I wish that all kids would have that opportunity of being in a stable situation Mm -hmm. where they stay in the neighborhood. They know everybody up and down the street. Mm -hmm. You go to elementary school, like I went to Halley, Bagley, Hampton, and Mumford. And we all came up together. And that was the feeder pattern. And then you look at them, and here you are now, senior citizens. Yeah. And you say, first of all, we're still here. That's right. Because COVID knocked a lot of us out. Oh. And then just getting older will knock you out. Mm-hmm. And then you see your friends, and you realize, these are no friends. This is family. This is family. And they are representing the elders in our community. Um, Joe, mm-hmm. which is critically important. I especially uh, will tell you, like I tell my aunt, y'all are the, the boomers generation. Okay, y'all are the early part of the boomers generation. And so, unfortunately, you don't get to retire, even when you retire, right? We don't retire. Uh, because you also represent a segment of volunteers that I know are active in supporting the system. Uh, some of you have come back in and are being mentors and social workers and other folks to support and help us wrap our arms around our kids. Because I know as generations pass, we always say it, but our kids that what they face today just feels insurmountable sometimes. And I think that one of the things, um, as you spoke earlier, in terms of what we can do to trigger change and to change the trajectory of where our kids will go is that we all have to take ownership. And it doesn't matter what space you're in, what age bracket you're in, but just take, just connect yourself to a kid and be the support for that young person. You know, one of the things that I talk about is in the 70s, you know, heroin took the father out the house, right? Mm -hmm. But in the 80s, crack took everybody out the house. And so we are still as a community suffering from the residue of what that looked like, even for are young people who made it, who have raised themselves and they ended up being teachers, not just folks who didn't make it, but people that did still have those gaps that were created when our families fell apart. And that was intentional, right? That was another assault on the black community. Um, But I believe that part of the path to healing is, is one, naming and understanding that those gaps are there and then two, intentionally working to close them. And so I think one of the things that we have to do is we just have to own um, supporting our young people. We have to get young people connected to adults. And so that includes our elders. That includes my generation and making sure we support them. One, encouraging them to stay in school because attendance is atrocious these days. And then we're also fighting um, the idea that the social media, um, all of these different technologies have you know, I think uh, eliminated the motivation for some to go to school, especially at the high school level, because now they can just FaceTime or Instagram Mm -hmm. or whatever they do, Snapchat, all these different platforms and engage socially with each other because high school, part of the motivation used to be about socializing, right? I'm going to go see my friends. That's why why I went. Click, click and see your (laughs) friends. Exactly. Right. And so I think for us is we have to 
you know, move with the time. So one, connecting uh, with our young people, uh, mentoring them. Um, I tell young people the same thing. Find somebody that's doing what you want to do and ask them to be your mentor. They're likely going to say yes. But I, I do think that the lift is heavy, but we can do it. This year, um, I will provide some insight in the district are really promoting volunteerism. And so as you're doing shows like this, Joe, and you are talking about the alumni and the fact that they're still around, there are opportunities I know within the district to kind of support in those ways, um, especially as nobody came back home from the pandemic. This is the first school year that we know that schools are going to be in and it's not shutting back down again. Monkeypox ain't going to do it. COVID ain't going to do it. Um, it was catastrophic for a lot of our kids, right? And so I think that part of what we have to do is have these conversations, but then evolve into some action. Um, there are all kinds of volunteer opportunities there. Even if you're just going to be somebody that's a friendly face in the morning to help receive kids, you know, just that love that affirmation. My dad used to kiss me on the forehead all the time. Or, you know, we had uh, one of our teachers at school would give us a high five. And just to change the way you're even feeling about coming into that environment. You know, we got to lead with love uh, for our kids before we start talking about what's wrong. Absolutely. Well, let's go into the word doubt. <laughs> the first thing that, you know, that I hear parents say they have a doubt if their children are getting a good education. It's really interesting where this doubt comes from. I believe I'm placing it on the state of Michigan mm -hmm. and it deals with those test scores. Mm. And I can tell you that as a teacher, that a test score does nothing for any child. It's about what that child's going to do in that classroom and the people that they come in contact with. But it is really said that we judge kids' ability by a test. Where do you think that some of that doubt comes from? Yeah, I, I think you're right, Joe. I think um, there's something to be said there. And I think over the many years, there has been, you know, as, I, as my own experience, that, you know, just the way families have been treated as if they're expendable. Uh, when there were challenges, we're talking about a school district that at some point had 150,000 children in it. And you can chunk some of it up as population loss or um, some of those kinds of things. And right now we're dealing heavily with gentrification. So, you know, that's real. But some of it was very uh, intentional when charter schools, you know, when the legislation was passed and you had charter schools come along. But there is a good core of that that came from when people had a choice, they made a different choice because they deserve to be treated like they are the parent of a child and feel valued, you know. So I think that's part of it, um, filling that doubt. I think teachers were robbed a long time ago of the ability to be flexible. I'll tell the story about Miss McCormick. She was my sixth grade teacher, right, at Remus Robinson Middle School. We loved her. And we knew that she loved us, Joe. And that's what I mean by leading with love. We knew she loved us because she would say to us in her classroom, it was like, learning came alive. You know, she was teaching us about science and some other things. And somehow we were making this fruit salad. So we all had a job to do. And so, you know, in the neighborhood, you know, especially in urban centers, we had access to the basics, the apples, the oranges, you know, things like mm -hmm. that. But Miss McCormick, she brought in kiwi fruit and she brought in passion fruits and some of the, the tropical fruits and things that weren't oh. always available 
And so it brought learning to life. And I remember at the end of that year, she said, I'm so proud of you guys. You are so, so smart. You know, we just felt we couldn't wait for that praise and attention. And then she says, but you know what? I need to see you guys mature a little more. And so I'm going to ask the principal to keep you through seventh grade. I don't remember a conversation about test scores. Right. I remember the love. I remember when we got in trouble, we got held accountable. And I think we've lost a lot of that. And so that contributes to doubt. So you have all these different dynamics. And then obviously we had 20 years of emergency management, right? Yes. And so that eroded some of the, um, you know, if you uh, consider it whole child development, where we were doing more around life skills, those kinds of programming that help round out education with knowing how to manage money and uh, knowing how to sew. I remember yes. I, I did not like home economics, but wood shop. Um, those are some of the things that rounded us out as people. And so I know that our parents feel doubt for those kinds of reasons, the inconsistency of leadership. You know, we've we've lost a lot. But I will say that we are also well positioned to get it back. We know that with stable leadership, which is what we've seen the school district have, and obviously I've been a part of that, that we were making huge strides, you know, pre-pandemic. So just a couple years in, we saw math scores going up higher than we've ever seen. As a matter of fact, we were doing better on the, on the NAEP test than a lot of folks around the country. Um, so we were seeing positive gains. And I think that we're positioned to get back to that. But it's going to take this entire community to be able to make those moves to, to help us accelerate teaching and learning on behalf of our kids. It's going to take the community um, getting invested with their time and their dollars. It's going to be, you know, to me, it's going to be about making sure that, um, you know, we treat people with respect and we build relationships. It's got to be about bringing people into the school, not pushing them out. And so there's some culture things um, that we have to deal with in terms of relationship building and those kinds of things that build that familial type family when you go to a school. Um, that people want to stay connected to the district. And I think there are a lot of things in place that are, that are helping us get in that space. I taught at Miller and Miller was a community family mm -hmm. school. We were very, very close and the parents did have some input. Mm -hmm. And but they trusted the principal. That's right. And they knew that Mr. Hendricks, I'm calling you out. Uh -huh. They trusted him that he was going to do the very, very best. That's right. I remember uh, one year they gave me this assignment and they took the eighth grade from me and gave me some sixth graders. My uh -huh. God, you know, that's hard work with those little <laughs> folks. And Hormones everywhere. Oh, yes. Yeah. So he said, well, King, what is it going to take for you to, you know, stay here? Uh -huh. And I said, I want a class that you'll let me keep for three years. Because hmm. I wanted to see how much that I could put in them. That's right. I was able to put a lot in them. And you had the freedom and flexibility to do that, right, Joe? He allowed me to take them to the museum on the public bus. Right, right. We went everywhere. You had the freedom to teach. Yes, the and, creativity. Right, without the pressure, test score. I mean, it, it, the testing went from being something that I would say um, it was suggested. I think it was pacing charts, right? And that mm -hmm. what you got. It was suggested to required, and it just changed the whole field, right? And you all felt it, and our kids especially feel it every single day. And it, you know, yeah, because we put challenge. We, we would put so much, you know, pressure on them. But when I had those children for those three years, the hardest part was 
when they graduated. I tried to die. <laughs> I tried to die. Because they became your kids and you were leading with love. The same thing Miss McCormick did is she was like, I'm, I'm going to keep you guys um, for seventh grade, too. And we were so excited and we never wanted to let her down because we knew that she loved us and she expected greatness out of each and every one of us. And we had to work on our maturity. So we were like, we're ready. We got to show her how mature we are. But even when you talked about Mr. Hendricks, that that was your principal, right? Mm -hmm. Mr. Polk was the principal over at Keaton Elementary. He was the epitome, like principals are still heroes in the community, right? They're like local celebrities. And so Mr. Polk was one of those guys where, hey, he ran the school. He, he was bald head. <laughs> you know, he always had on these shiny shoes. He always had on a suit. But, you know, all the kids, you know, we know, knew that he cared about us. And he had relationships with my parents and parents throughout the community. So, you know, going back to leading with love and building relationships, those educators epitomize, you know, uh, what it meant to be an educator and also had the freedom, if you will, and the support to really bring learning to life. And, you know, it's really interesting. The people that keep that school together. That's right. It's going to be your principal. That's right. And your phys ed department. That's those, inside. You know, coaches, That's inside uh, knowledge, Joe. I those, don't know about you know, that. coaches do so much work. They raise your money for you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They do security work. Right, right. They check you. If you want a clown, uh-huh. they'll clown with you. Oh, all right. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> so the principal and that phys ed department, they are so, so important. And I would submit that parents are too. I mm-hmm. think that we're mistaken if we think we can do the best for our kids without parents. And I know that barring mental health and substance abuse issues, our parents weren't the best for their kids. And in fact, when I was leading work at Detroit Parent Network, even if parents came in with liquor on their breath or smelling like marijuana, weed, ganja, whatever you wanted to call it, it's all over the place. Cannabis is legal now, right? Uh, we would still greet them as Mr. or Mrs. Smith right. because they were connected to a child. And I, I'll tell you, my father, he was a mess. When he came up in Keaton, I was a student there. Mr. Pope uh, was the principal. And he, you know, he came because I was crying. And I said, the boy pushed me. And my father came up there with me on top of his shoulders. And he had me point out the assailant. <laughs> <laughs> we were all five years old, right? <laughs> so he was one of those parents kind of acting a fool. Mr. Pope came out, Mr. Gillis, Mr. Gillis, put that kid down here picked the little boy up and waved this finger like, you put your hands on nobody else. All out of order, right? And so I'm going to tell you about my book. I talk about this story a little bit in my book that I just wrote, Joe. But, you know, I saw he, my father and Mr. Polk walk up the hall, which I'm sure was a conversation about his inappropriate behavior, right? <laughs> but let me tell you what did not happen. He did not call the police. My father did not cuss out the principal. Okay. There was no ban letter issued. And so when you talk about culture, and how he could have, he had every right to call 911. But my father became one of the strongest volunteers in that school system because there was respect. See there? He got my dad together. My dad didn't pick up no more kids, and nor did that little boy push me again either. <laughs> But it was about bringing people into the school system, Joe, because we can't do this alone. No. It's got to be about the whole community coming in. What can you do? We have some churches right now that just drop off care kits for kids, hygiene kits, you know, um, help with uniforms, uh, tutor kits. All those things matter 
But it was it was about the school and the entire community yes. supporting it from whatever lens that you could. But Mr. Pope did not play, but he epitomized leadership and he turned he turned that sucker around. He he didn't put him out, he put him to work. That's what he did. And that's smart. That's mm-hmm. smart. But you know, it's very interesting that parents have this doubt. But if their kids get into cast, mm-hmm. king, renaissance, or whatever. All that doubt leaves. Mm. It's like they feel, well, this is the best school, even though there are some other high schools that are still, you know, good. But their, you know, doubt seems to kind of like, you know, leave. If you bring people in, though, Joe, and that's the value of valuing people and parents and community as part of the education experience and process for our kids, then they're right there to see your vision, to hear your vision, to help spread the good news. That's what changes things as well, because you are not going to outrun 20 years of emergency management and some of this other stuff that happened that contributed to the demise of our schools. But if you want to get on board now and see that there are 20 different ways for you to volunteer to help the school out, that we have great leadership at the board level, we We have a rock star superintendent, all those things matter. And so now we just need the people. It's time to get involved and see what's going on. And that's what changes the narrative that comes out of people's mouths is, is really seeing and being a part of what's happening. You know, obviously you have your flagship schools. Those are some of the best in the state and the country, Mm -hmm. you know, Renaissance and Cass and those kinds of things. But there are great neighborhood schools who are doing great work with our young people. And if you just get involved, you'll see some of that. So absolutely. We got to make that connection. When I was a child, we all went to school because our parents told us. Mm -hmm. But in my heart, I went to school for music. That's right. Art, (laughs) gym and library. I don't know how I ever learned how to read and write. Me but, either. But, but those, were, those were my favorite, favorite classes. When we were going through our emergency managers, mm-hmm. I watched how they closed the libraries, mm. how there was no longer music. So they would ask a teacher, well, since you sing, can you have a choir? Mm-hmm. Uh, the art was, you know, gone. Have we... Are we going to soon put those classes oh, yeah. back in? And what we do know, Joe, is that in the first year that our superintendent, Dr. Vitti, was there is that all schools had music or art. All schools had some type of phys ed. It was, it was an intentional way to make sure that those things were placed back into schools. And Good. so, and my favorite in school was music. My teacher was Lisa Williams, and um, that's what I went to school and that's for. Why so, you're I a very would, good singer. I would sing. All, I don't know if I was very good, Joe, but all I know I've heard is. heard you sing. You sing well. <laughs> and I will say, I hope Mr. Stokes is listening because he was my math teacher over at Remus Robinson. I keep telling him I'm coming for him. Because when I was in sixth grade and he paddled me, that was not me talking, okay? We've been having this conversation for 30 years now. And now he writing love books after he paddled me. No, Mr. Pope. I mean, no, Mr. Stokes. I still haven't gotten over it. He's probably listening. You know, one of the uh, hardest jobs that I used to have teaching was to explain to children when they would say, this is boring. And I said, look, this is not Sesame Street. I'm not going to entertain you. You are going to have to learn this for that yourself so that one day that you can live a quality life. And I even taught this one uh, course called Efficacy, Uh which was one of the greatest courses 
that we had. Oh, that's still needed today. Well, they ended up phasing it out. I guess that, you know, at that time, maybe the money wasn't. Yeah, well, see, there's an opportunity, Joe. There's an opportunity. And my students still remember it. And I have students that are 40 years old and they still will tell me they will recite some of those principles. That's right. Out of efficacy. And I said, my goodness, they were listening. What were those principles, Joe? We talked about a quality life, never to allow a person to bring you low. We never said down. That's right. We said low. You sound like Obama. (laughs) When they go low, we go high. You know, and I think that they probably knew each other. His name was Jeff Howard. Yeah. And he was out of um, Chicago. Yeah. But he had this, you know, fantastic program. And we taught the children, find your zone. That's right. And then move further out. Mm -hmm. As soon as you achieve, move further out. Continue to set goals Mm -hmm. for yourself. So just believing in yourself, believing that you can do it. Self-motivation. All those things are also life skills as well as how you work your way out of unhealthy mental spaces and Mental health, obviously, is 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 an even uh, more needed thing in the schools now. And we've doubled down on that quite a bit just because this pandemic, you know, and our kids being in isolation and, you know, not able to go to their schools. Yeah, that was um, bad. You know, that was pretty bad for the adults and for the kids. And so I think a program like that could be extremely powerful, Joe. And it's one of the things that we've been talking about is life skills. Is how do we prepare our kids, you know, coping skills, you know, how you work yourself back into a positive space. And those are the kinds of things that our teachers taught us informally and formally through programs like you just mentioned. Right. And we used to talk about obstacles. Mm. You are going to have them. That's right. But you got to learn to be able to jump over them or to go around them. But you just cannot let that, you know, um, stop you. Um, Do you think we give our children enough options? Mm Mm-mm. No, that's an easy one. No. Next question. <laughs> no, I, I think that and to my earlier point about littering a path with, you know, opportunities and, and access and experiences, you know, that piece is critically important. And, and we're so restrictive. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we're so focused in on the test that we've lost some of that creativity. And so I do think that for people who are listening, it's opportunities in school, but it's the inside outside strategy, right? Like there are opportunities that we can create through organizations and churches and businesses and uh, things like that, whether it is I'm going to commit to do uh, summer jobs, you know, to provide summer jobs for some children, or I'm going to fund something like that, or I'm going to help young people earn a stipend by helping clean up the neighborhood. Um, I'm going to organize a college tour or I can tell you one of the things that I've taken on and asked for in the district was student leadership because I wanted to create some of those wider opportunities. And so um, this past year, despite the pandemic, uh, we took kids to the Whitney for high tea because we we need them to understand how to function in some of these formal and informal environments. You know, what side of the chair do you get up off of and and just etiquette and to make sure that they understand etiquette from the standpoint of somebody die. You don't go to the funeral to eat. You take something. You know, so, (laughs) you know, just making sure our children are very well rounded. And so I asked for it for that reason, because these are our young people who are going to be leading and they bad, they bold and they're ready. But there's some pieces that we got to make sure are there. So the efficacy that you um, just mentioned, the experiences, the exposure. It's one of the things that happened for me when I was in the youth program. 
you know, I hadn't been out in my neighborhood a lot. I grew up on the east side of Detroit, not that far from here. And I remember being on a field trip and we were downtown Detroit and I looked around and, you know, it was all these people running around in suits. And I was like, I want to be one of those people. Now, I didn't know what they were doing, where they were going. But a few years later, guess what? It helped me create a vision for myself. And so I was one of those people walking around in suits. I knew exactly what they were doing. They had 30 minutes for lunch. They were running to get something to eat and they were going back to work. Mm -hmm. And so my first um, job in a formal environment like that was a bank. And my mentor was one of the people that helped me land that opportunity. I ended up working for the bank for five years after that, you know, going from an intern or a summer job to proving myself and, you know, becoming uh, one of the lead folks. Uh, in the system of corporate America, you know, going branch to branch. So, you know, I didn't involve to a presidency or an executive uh, level in that way, but um, leading in the sense of providing customer service and supports and just engaging people. And I just decided for me, it was more important to make that investment in my people. I was more compelled because of the community leaders that came together for me. And so I made an intentional choice to leave corporate America where I was doing well as a young person, and I fell in love with the work in the neighborhoods. And so that mentoring, um, the question around, are we providing enough opportunities? Well, that's what creating those opportunities can get you. It gets you to this place that I'm at. It gets you to the place that you're at, Joe. And we need our kids to get to those places too. So yeah, we need to do more in that space. And again, whatever space you're in, it's not just about are you working for the system? Everybody has agency in the space that they're in. The question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, uh, one of the narratives that they pretty much had us spin in terms of a child's future, we would say, okay, either you go to college, uh, junior college, trade school, or to the service. They purposely never said the factories. And I think that what that made the children think that if you work at a factory, then you are a loser. And today, you ask our children what they want. Of course, that they want to be ballers. Mm -hmm. They want to be rappers. They want to, you know, go. They want to be singers. I still want to be a singer. Uh-huh. And fashion. <laughs> right. And we have Chrysler jobs that nobody wants mm -hmm. because we never, ever pushed it. But they do not realize that those Chrysler jobs can get you into the middle class. Mm. I had a uncle, my uncle Charlie, that had to drop out of high school because it was during the um, Depression. And he went to work for Fords. All my uncle Charlie did was go to work and go to church and come home. He was a millionaire. Mm. And I was told that there were many people that worked that line. Yeah, Detroit. I mean, that's why people came from that's all over right. the world to take advantage of those jobs. Exactly. I do think it's layered, Joe, but I also would add to the mix entrepreneurship. You know, last time I checked, 70% of new jobs was coming from creating small business. And so when we, we see think a lot about of that now. college or trade school or, you know, whether they go to work for a factory or they go uh, learn a trade, uh, we have to add entrepreneurship to that piece as well, because I do think that this generation is unapologetic about how they spend their time. They're not going to work like you and I. See, I'm on the tail end of your generation. Right. We still have some of those values of the boomers. But this generation behind me, they ain't having it. They're like, uh, don't judge me, auntie, <laughs> but I'm not working like you. OK. And they real about that. And the world has evolved as well. So I think it really goes back to what are the opportunities? That, what are the exposures that we're providing 
about the plethora of career options that are relevant today in today's world. Before this pandemic, there was nowhere near the number of people working from home. And so now we've seen it uh, happen because we had to do it. Um, But companies have rethought, you know, have redesigned their whole business structure based on that. There's some interesting and great things that came out of this catastrophe as well. Yes, yes. (laughs) And some efficiencies that came out of that. You know, stretch pants was the number one, leggings they call them. You see? (laughs) Leggings (laughs) is the number one seller thing. Exactly. Put on a nice top, get on camera. Everybody (laughs) got a little bit more savvy with technology. So there's greatness wrapped up in chaos all the time. And I say that about our kids as well. That when you receive kids and they are challenged because we don't have the traditional family structures that we had before, but there is still greatness wrapped up in our kids. And I think it's incumbent upon us not to give up, not to throw in the towel. If we don't believe that a nine or 10 year old black boy or brown boy and girl um, has the potential to make it, then we do need to hang it up. But it is believing that there is greatness wrapped up in them and you don't know what's going to trigger the leader in them. You don't know what's going to trigger the entrepreneur in them or they're the next pastor. They're going to be sitting here doing the the Detroit Joe (laughs) Uh, show. But it goes back to that access and opportunities. Everything in life is about that. So are we doing enough? No. Can we do more? Yes. And the question is, what are you going to do? Right. Now, if you are a parent and you have a child going to school any place in this country, you have got to feel a little bit of fear every Mm -hmm. day that they Mm -hmm. walk out Mm -hmm. of that house. Mm -hmm. And whenever they say there's been a shooting there at at a school, I hold my breath all of the time. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, knock on wood and thank you, Jesus. We haven't had that problem here. I know where you're going. I was going to say, I don't want that to happen to anybody. No. Ever. Um, And we've been fortunate that it hasn't happened here. But there is a level of fear and anxiety. But as we know from what we've come through as a people, that we cannot walk in fear. And that we know that our kids got to be in these schools. We got to get them in there. We got to get in these schools. You know, it's almost like my pastor told me one day, I was like, I got to get my kids baptized. He said, you need to make sure your butt in church, okay? (laughs) So so I will say the same thing, um, parallel that to education. We got to get our kids in these school buildings because virtual learning was a catastrophe. Don't go for the okey-doke. Who who coined that for us? Was that Muhammad Ali? Don't go for the okey-doke or the rope-a-dope. Get your kid in school. Get involved in that school. And then education was never just about the physical brick and mortar. You talked about catching the bus with your students, but it was was about what we were formally learning in school. But education also took course at home, right? right? My parents did not go as far in school. My mother didn't go as far, but we always had a homework table. Set up a homework table for your kids. I don't know if my mother knew how to do the work, but she looked at it. We thought she knew how to do it. So fake it until you make it. But look at them papers, you know, ask questions about how was your day? Write the teacher. Tell them about your kid. Nobody knows that child better than you. And I can tell you all day long with little Lena, she is not a morning person. Virtual learning was a catastrophe. I would get up in the morning, get her up, get her ready for virtual learning. Joe go back up there thinking she's sitting there doing her work. That girl had went back to bed. I said, oh, no, honey. You know, it just does. I can tell you she's not a morning person. But when she had to go to school, guess what? And when her teacher knew that. So There are ways that we can come together to close the gaps on this thing, um, Joe, but it's going to take us rolling up our hands and getting involved. You can't sit back and pontificate about the situation. It ain't going to change nothing. It's not. It's going to be like pick a kid, anyone, because we got a whole bunch of them, 
and make an investment. Exactly. Pick a school. Show up. Even if it's once a week or a couple times a month, be that elder or that grand person that they look forward to because our kids are not getting the touches and the love and the hugs that they deserve to get that makes them look forward to coming to school and the relationships. We need that. Yes. And the final part before I have you uh, tell us about your book is the health of our children. Mm. A lot of parents do not realize we have a lot of children in our school that are not healthy. Out of the grace of God, we have nurses. Mm -hmm. Don't all of the schools have them, but many of our schools do have nurses. Yeah. I had a child that was coughing, one day coughing. I said, all right, so he has a cold. Second day, he's coughing harder. Mm -hmm. I said, "Mm -mm, mm mm-mm. It's bigger than a cold. I took that child down to that nurse, Mm -hmm. found out that he had asthma, And Mm -hmm. his mother ran out of the medicine. Yeah. So that the nurse, every day that he would come in, she'd give him a breathing treatment. Yeah. And she had a conference with his mother and said, look, you're going to go down to the health department. This is who you're going to talk to in order so he could have, you know, treatment. And that's something that's very important that we have nurses in all of our schools. We do have nurses in our schools and and we're going to continue with some of that support. Um, Joe, it's one of the things that I feel good about, um, not just for physical health and those kinds of things, but also mental health. I think those pieces are critically important. And some of it is systematic right now. We have some, you know, we have Myers and we have a few more grocery stores here and there, but, you know, it's about access to healthy foods and, and also educating parents on how food directly relates to brain power. You know, there's pieces that we do on that uh, in the district around Parent Academy, like brain food and things like that. So we have to continue to educate. Remember I talked about the 80s crack took everybody out. There were some things that you missed. Yes. You know, and so those gaps, um, that's what it looks like sometimes. It manifests itself into, you know, you may be leading and and doing things a certain way because you didn't have a grandmother to sit down with you to tell you this or how to put it together, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, for me, it's about education, uh, getting involved, making sure that parents know about the services and support. So I'm glad you lifted that up. We have a homeless office in the district that a lot of folks don't know about. So if you're experiencing homelessness, kids are eligible for additional supports around transportation, uniforms, other types of resources our families can take advantage of. So for a long time, teachers have played exactly the role that you just mentioned. They notice something and they'll take them to the nurse or make a referral. And those resources do exist in the school. So we got to do a better job of educating parents about them and also making sure teachers and other staff know how to access them on behalf of children. So we're doing more in that space, you know, to get our kids to a healthier point and just encouraging that with our families as well. Well, it's time for you to tell us about this fabulous book. (laughs) And there's no one better to write a book on that topic than you. Oh, man. You know, Joe, thank you for uh, for that moment. And, and I'll just be quick. I will just say that I decided um, several months ago, I was talking to a friend that, you know, I've been a critic of saying that we as black people, um, as people of color, have to write about our experiences and not allow others to write about it for us right. and turn around and monetize those things, too. Right. And so I challenged myself to do the same thing as I'm turning 50 this year. And so I was like, the second half of my life, I still got a good decade to give you passionately in this field and and doing this work. But I also think that it has been 
innate to us as a people in the village to make sure you pass on what you've learned. And so the title of the book, The Ardent Advocate, was something that happened in 2013 uh, when I was leading work, uh, leading parents to be more involved in the schools um, during that time. And there was an article in the Michigan Chronicle and they named me the ardent advocate that I led with passion and compassion and things like that. And so as I was writing, I, I started with a set of stories, right? Because I love stories. And, you know, we had griots in our villages and things like that to tell the stories, right? The keeper of stories. And so I love stories. So I would start with taking the story and I'll tell it. It's kind of funny. Like you'll hear me talk about my dad, Mr. Gillis, put that kid down. But then I'll talk about, you know, what schools should do, um, what the challenges are what parents should do. And so people can get a glimpse of systematically, what adjustments do we make to get back to that loving school community? You know, it's never going to be the way it was. It can be greater, um, but it means that we have to take a look at it from all those different lenses. And so so I named the book The Ardent Advocate because the community named me that. And all of these experiences have been about, uh, for me, positioning our children to win I think there's some nuggets in there that's going to help folks who are um, practitioners in the field, whether you're a parent, um, you'll find some affirmations in there. When people try to make you think you crazy, you're not. It's the way they looked at me. It is. <laughs> but we also can't give people tools to put us out to school either. So it just kind of addresses it from a couple different lenses. And I was just really happy to share from my experience of being put out of school to now being this person who. Um, has agency and influence and can make some decisions to be able to talk to folks about what that looks like. And um, in my own words, so. I'm looking forward to it. It's on Amazon, amazon.com, the art advocate. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, Shalanda, we'd like to thank you for being here. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and if you ever want to come back to talk about anything, okay. you are more than welcome. I appreciate that, Joe. Okay. I mostly love the way you have this office set up and it's just so comfortable. So, you know, the interviewers, they're going to be comfortable too. <laughs> yes. uh, thank you so much. And thank you for all you've done as an educator and a leader, uh, both in this community and in that classroom, churning out these folks who are making decisions and telling you to stay in the house now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I appreciate me. you. <laughs> right. Okay. Now for my two cents. If one positive thing came out of COVID, it is the fact that parents learned that educating their own child was hard. Parents were trying to work from home while trying to be teachers. It was hard. It is hard. Parents don't feel bad. Just ask for help. Many schools have after-school programs, food programs, and many things you might need. The social worker is there to assist you, not get all up into your business. And as for you feeling your child is a little behind because of COVID, they are not. You did your best. Well, this is Detroit Joe signing off. If nothing else, walk in love and peace.